Writer-director Christopher Nolan's three-hour epic biographical film Oppenheimer opened this weekend, making more than $80 million in box office sales in its first couple of days. The film tells a version of the life story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the men who invented the atomic bomb. So far, it has earned raves from the press, including a New York Times preview that described the physicist as being the director of a clandestine weapons lab built, and I'm going to quote here, folks, in a near-desolate stretch, unquote, of New Mexico. But is that true? Was the area where Oppenheimer established the Los Alamos National Labs near-desolate? The answer is no. The U.S. Army seized that land in 1942 from local farmers and ranchers, most of them Hispanos and Native Americans who had lived in that area for centuries, if not thousands, of years. Three years later, they tested the first bomb on more rural New Mexicans near Alamogordo, saying it was no big deal because there was nothing out there but cows and Mexicans. None of this appears in the film. Who were these farmers and homesteaders? What did they go through? And why do Hollywood and history books in 2023 continue to ignore them? Welcome to Chingona History, the podcast that uncovers the extraordinary and often overlooked stories of Latinas who shaped United States history. I'm your host, best-selling author and award-winning journalist, Alisa Lynn Valdez. I'm glad you're here. Okay, so let's time travel a little bit. A million years ago, a volcano that we now refer to as the Valles Caldera, in what is now northern New Mexico, erupted. Wide rivers of red-hot lava seeped across the land, eventually forming the mesas, or plateaus, of an area that we now call the Pajarito Plateau. About 990,000 years later, or about 10 to 20,000 years ago from today, the first human beings arrived to that area. These were the ancestors of the modern Tewa people, Puebloan Native Americans who spoke and, in some cases, still speak the Tewa language. For thousands of years, they lived on that plateau, and they left behind things like the impressive cliff dwellings that still stand today in the Bandelier National Forest. Of course, the Tewa did not refer to themselves as Pueblo people, nor did they call where they lived the Pajarito Plateau. Pueblo and Pajarito are Spanish words. They were brought to that area in 1598 when Spanish invaders showed up in search of gold and silver. What those Spaniards found instead were sophisticated Tewa, Zuni, Hopi, and many other farming communities. These were beautiful cities with multi-story buildings made of adobe and vast farmland. The Spaniards, of course, did what they had done before in the Caribbean and Mexico to the Taino, the Arawak, the Aztec, and the Maya, which is to say they enslaved, raped, and murdered the Tewa. The genocidal abuse perpetrated by the Spaniards on the native people of what's now New Mexico was temporarily derailed by the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. This was led by a medicine man from the Taos Pueblo named Pope. It's regarded by many people as the first 
Great American Revolution. For 14 years, the native people of our region drove and kept the Spaniards out. But they eventually came back. This time, however, they were somewhat more conciliatory. To make a very long story short, Spanish and native people here in New Mexico have been here a long time. And in 1598, they began a centuries-long journey of mixing together. Spanish Catholicism here has taken on many aspects of native beliefs. People intermarried, and modern DNA testing reveals that most of the people who identify as Spanish or Hispano in New Mexico carry a significant amount of their DNA from Native American ancestors. This history is one that we'll cover in many more stories on this podcast, but for today's purposes, we concern ourselves with the fact that despite the myth that the Los Alamos area was near desolate and unpopulated, a myth that has again been perpetuated by Nolan's new film, there were people here, and there had been people here for a very long time. Okay, so we know that the Pajarito Plateau, which is where Oppenheimer would eventually build the Los Alamos National Laboratories, or what would become the Los Alamos National Laboratories, was Native American land for tens of thousands of years. And we know the Spaniards arrived from Europe in 1598 to so-called colonize that land committing genocide against its people. This means this part of the United States was part of New Spain, like most of the rest of Latin America, for more than 200 years. In 1821, this region of New Mexico, where I live, gained its independence from Spain along with the rest of Mexico. And it was Mexico here in New Mexico for 16 short years years. The Chimayo Revolt of 1837, Chimayo is very close to Los Alamos, was a rebellion by local Hispanos against Mexican taxation, similar to the Boston Tea Party, where the Americans revolted against taxation by England. The Chimayo Revolt led to the murder of Governor Albino Perez and other top officials back then, and New Mexico became, very briefly, an independent, sovereign Hispano nation, at least in its own mind. Mexico, of course, disagreed. New Mexico even went to war against Texas in 1841 and defeated Texas. Five years later, the Mexican-American War began Mexico still considered New Mexico its own. The United States went to war with Mexico in the Mexican-American War in 1846. And two years later, the countries signed a document called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, in which Mexico agreed to give the United States an enormous portion of its northern territory, fully 55% of its own land. This territory included New Mexico and seven other present-day U.S. states. In 1850, the United States Congress declared New Mexico a United States territory. This is the same status currently held 
by Puerto Rico. Back then, New Mexico included Arizona. It wasn't until the Civil War that the two were divided, with Arizona going to the Confederacy and New Mexico sticking to the North. In 1898, the U.S. went to war against Spain, marking the end of Spanish rule over much of its North American territory. So it wasn't until 1912 that New Mexico formally became a United States state, meaning all of the Hispano and Native American people who were already here were suddenly made United States citizens just a little more than a hundred years ago. Hispanos and Native Americans in New Mexico, having already demonstrated these powerful independent streaks all along the way, were suddenly expected to switch languages and allegiances. The Hispanos of New Mexico, who identified, and some still do, fiercely as ethnic Spaniards, had built a complicated caste system here over centuries that doesn't fit neatly into the present U.S. census system of racial or ethnic designations. Native people here, for instance, could earn or purchase their Spanishness. We'll get to all of that in other episodes. The point being, the Hispanos of New Mexico, when New Mexico becomes a state, were suddenly viewed by their new Anglo rulers, as they referred to them, as second-class citizens, a view that they, as the colonizers themselves, did not readily or happily share. So this, my friends, is the social and historical context into which Oppenheimer and the rest of the Manhattan Project scientists who came to New Mexico to build the labs entered. These men knew next to nothing about this history, and that was by design. From the moment the United States took over this part of the world, the U.S. government has sought, through the media and through propaganda itself and through policy, to systematically erase all evidence that seven of its 50 states, eight if you count Texas, once were part of Mexico and or Spain. And the people who lived there then did not leave. U.S. history books never delve into the history of these places before they were states, other than to toss out a vague acknowledgement that there were Native people here once, implying that it was long ago and that they're gone, neither of which are true. There's never any mention of the 150,000 people in this region who suddenly became U.S. citizens overnight. This erasure serves the purposes of aggressively and deliberately denying that many U.S. citizens of Latino descent have been in what's now this United States nation far longer than many of the other groups. The preferred collective narrative of Latinos in the United States is that we are all newly arrived and do not quite belong here. This is a mythology, a fiction, that was deliberately created by the Anglo-United States government in the 19th century. 
This was done in order to justify seizing the land owned by Hispanos and others who suddenly became citizens of the United States through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Even though that treaty guaranteed them their land, that guarantee was repeatedly broken, and that continues to this day. This narrative also continues to be embraced to this day by xenophobic leaders across the country who are seeking to manufacture fear of Mexicans, which the term Mexican gets conflated with Hispano, Latino, Latinx, Latine, Latin, all of that gets conflated with migrant, immigrant, and those t- terms get conflated with illegal and criminal. This has all been deliberate. It's done in order to scapegoat a perceived and exoticized, foreignized other, particularly during times of economic hardship. This tactic serves to focus white and to some extent black and other discontent upon so-called Mexicans, who are then conflated with every other Latino group, thereby protecting the overwhelmingly white status quo. By the time Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project showed up on the Pajarito Plateau, the U.S. propaganda efforts to dehumanize Hispanos was well underway. It was an attitude that was considered the norm and clearly internalized by the racist attitudes of the men who were in charge of the Manhattan Project. That racism is clear in their actions, policies, and general disdain for the local population whom they regarded as subhuman. This is continuing in Hollywood and history's efforts to ignore and erase the people who have been here and who were there and who were literally displaced from their farms by the Manhattan Project. Okay, so the official story goes that Oppenheimer wanted a large plot of land in the middle of nowhere in order to create the atomic bomb, isolated for security and safety purposes. But, in truth, he chose New Mexico, according to his own papers, because his family had a ranch here, and he'd spent summers here and enjoyed the scenery. He said he thought the landscape of the Pajarito Plateau, which is beautiful, would be inspiring to his men. In order to commandeer the land for this, the Manhattan Project displaced two dozen landowners from their farms and ranches. Now, two dozen might not sound like much, especially if you're living in a city and you have that sort of scale in mind. But each of these landowners held tracts of land that were at least 160 acres each. In many of these cases, the landowners' families had been on that land for hundreds of years, maybe more. But in another sleight of hand, history gets to claim that they had only been homesteading there since the late 1800s, which is when the United States Homestead Act was introduced. In the Homestead Act, the United States government literally gave away 160-acre parcels of land in the United States West, Southwest, to anyone who asked and was deemed worthy by the government of the gift. 
This was done in an effort to further so-called settle the new states in the West that the U.S. had acquired from Mexico, meaning the U.S. gave its citizens elsewhere the permission to take over land in the Southwest that was often already claimed and occupied by Hispanos and Native Americans. Hispanos and Native Americans of means in the Pajarito Plateau area, people like David Romero, found themselves in the strange position of having to submit requests for homesteading rights to their own land. It is thus that their official claim to the land is now spun by the Manhattan Project as being not all that bad because those people hadn't been on the land for that long, right? Only 60 years or so. That's the official line. But this, like everything else about the official story, was a half-truth that doesn't allow for the full history and humanity of the Hispano and Native people of that area. It should also be mentioned that one of these homesteaders was a white man, not Hispanic, who had moved to the area to try to recover from tuberculosis, a disease that would eventually kill him. In 1942, the Pajarito Mesa was really difficult to access. There was only one road going up the hill, and it was so narrow and winding that the locals referred to it as La Culebra, which means the snake. This was a rural area. There were no major cities for hundreds of miles. Now, I mention this because the U.S. Army removed these two dozen families from their land by force. Most of the families didn't speak English, but they were not provided with translators. The army simply showed up in the morning and told them they had to be off their land that same day, or maybe the next day. In many cases, these families were land rich but money poor, meaning all that they owned was on or in that land. They were subsistence farmers living off of the land using the same farming techniques pioneered by native people tens of thousands of years before. All that they ate, they grew or raised. All that they owned, they built. So you can imagine how terrifying and difficult it was for them to vacate their land down La Culebra, that narrow road, without the means to carry very much and with absolutely nowhere to go. Old timers in our area up there recall that the army was absolutely brutal in removing these families from their land. In cases where they were unable to get their livestock off the land in time, the army simply shot the beasts on the spot and bulldozed them into the ground, along with most of the structures and people's belongings. So the men of that community were forced to then go back to the labs to ask for jobs. And the labs gave them jobs, but not good ones. Local Hispano and Native American men were hired to work with the world's most toxic and dangerous chemicals at the labs, including beryllium, without the protective gear that was given to their white supervisors. 
These men employed to do this were not limited to the homesteaders who'd been displaced. All of the men in that region, which was suddenly upended by this gigantic construction project, sought work at the labs, which to this day remain the largest employer in northern New Mexico. But that first generation of Hispano and Native men who were put to work with beryllium and other chemicals were stricken with terrible diseases as the result of this work. And the supervisors obviously knew fully well that it could kill them because they themselves wore protective gear. In the summer of 1945, Oppenheimer and his team had finally finished building their bomb, and they needed to test it out before dropping it on Japan. They had internal discussions about where to do that. They wanted to test it on some other country, the kind of nation that would later be referred to as the Third World, a country they didn't think mattered. But they worried that dropping a nuclear bomb on some other nation to test it might lead to diplomatic problems, no matter how insignificant they thought that nation was. So they opted instead to test the bomb on rural New Mexico, in the southern part of the state, near the town of Alamogordo. Notes from those meetings show that Oppenheimer and others felt it was better to test the bomb in an area inhabited by cows and Mexicans than it would have been to test it in an area where white people lived. My own family had a ranch and a farm near the Trinity test site where Oppenheimer's team ultimately detonated the world's first nuclear bomb. That bomb was identical to the bomb the U.S. would later drop on Nagasaki, Japan. And while most people in the United States know about the two bombs that the U.S. dropped on Japan, the other being at Hiroshima, few people here realize that before those bombs fell, the United States government tested the bomb on its own new Hispano and Native American citizens in New Mexico, rationalizing this act by dismissing our humanity on account of our ethnicity or perceived ethnicity. My own family was impacted by this. My great-grandfather, John Conant, was a sheep farmer who got up early and thought the sun came up twice that day. Nobody warned any of us. My mother was 18 months old the day the bomb was dropped. She has suffered from illness from the radiation her entire life, as have many people in New Mexico. Of the 21 girls in my mother's graduating high school class, 17 had leukemia. My mother developed thyroid cancer, as well as a brain tumor the size of an orange. Both are the types of illnesses that only occur in people who have been exposed to excessively high doses of radiation. All right, but I don't want to leave you on a total downer. I want to give you a little bit of hope. 
In my next episode, I'm going to be talking to an incredible woman named Loida Martinez, who is from Chimayo, New Mexico. Her father was one of the men who was hired to work with beryllium and later died of beryliosis. Loida filed a class action lawsuit against the Los Alamos National Labs on behalf of her father and all of the other workers who were forced to work with that chemical and others without protection. And she won. We'll talk to Loida about that and about the second class action lawsuit she also filed against the Los Alamos National Labs in the next episode. Until then, this has been Chingona History, and I'm your host, Elisa Lynn Valdez. I'm glad you're here. This has been Chingona History. We are a shoestring staff of one. So this podcast was produced, researched, engineered, hosted, recorded, and everything else by me, Elisa. <laughs>